following is a list of things that one lady, young lady learned from her mother entitled simply, The Things That My Mother Taught Her. She writes this. says, My mother taught me logic by stating things such as, If you fall out of that swing and break your neck, you can't go to the store with me today. <laughs> my mother taught me medicine. She said, If you don't stop crossing your eyes, you know they're going to freeze that way. My mother taught me to think ahead. She said, If you don't pass your spelling test, you'll never get a good job. My mother taught me ESP. She said, put your sweater on. Don't you think that I know when you're cold? <laughs> Says, my mother taught me to meet a challenge. What are you thinking? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you talk back to me. There's a challenge. My mother taught me humor, like the time she told my brother. When that lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't you come running to me. My mother taught me to be an adult when she said, if you don't eat your vegetables, you'll never grow up. My mother taught me about genetics when she said, you know, you're just like your father. My mother taught me about my roots when she said, hey, what do you think, you're born in a barn? My mother taught me about the wisdom of age. She said, when you get to be my age, then you'll understand. My mother taught me about anticipation when she stated, you just wait until your father gets home. My mother taught me about receiving when she said, you're going to get it when we get home. And the last thing, my favorite thing, my mother taught me about justice. When she stated one day, one day you will have kids, and I hope they turn out to be just like you. Then you'll see what this is all about. And the young lady finishes by saying, and she thought that no one was listening. Anyway, to all the moms out there, seriously, and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and everyone that uh, we honored this morning, happy Mother's Day. And I hope today is a very blessed and special day for every one of you. And I hope one day you learn to take a joke. All right. As a reminder, we're in the midst of a series of messages designed to address the question, what does the future hold? As we approach the dawn of a new millennium, there is much conversation and speculation as to what may lie ahead. Fortunately for us, God has chosen to shed light on the future by giving us solid information with regards to the millennium. And uh, as you recognize uh, from our studying together, uh, God has much to say about the, the apostasy, the great tribulation, the coming world leader, or the antichrist. And as a result, he also has something to say about the, the millennium, not to be confused with another millennium or the dawn of a new millennium, but specifically what the Bible has to say about what God calls the millennium, the millennium of all millenniums. And uh, we're going to take a look at that as we address this particular question in this session and also next when we ask the question and address what is the millennium or what exactly is the Bible talking about or referring to when we talk about the millennium. If you'll recall in our last meeting together, we examined the biblical description of the Battle of Armageddon and all the ramifications uh, therein. And after the devastation of Armageddon, it's only reasonable that one would ask at this particular point, what's next for planet Earth? Because after all, according to the Bible, the political, religious, and economic systems of the world will have been totally destroyed by Jesus Christ. And the answer to some of those questions and other passages that we'll look at are found in our Revelation chapter 20. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 20 as we're introduced to this whole idea of the millennium. It's in this passage of Scripture where the length of the millennium is specifically mentioned. The word millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ and the uh, Messiah spoken of in Scripture. So in, in Revelation chapter 20, 
We're going to start with verse 1 and uh, we'll go down through verse 10. John writes, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. It says, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed, and after these things he must be released for a short time. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out or he'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashores. It says, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As we look at this particular section of Scripture, it is very clear, as you'll go through with me, and see that there is a specific period of time that's mentioned over and over again. Starting in verse 2, we read that, that, that Satan <clears throat> excuse me, will be bound for a thousand years, and they'll throw him into the abyss, and it says, and he will be there and stay there until the thousand years were completed. If you go down to verse 4, we read again, where that, that says that they will be, um, in the end of verse 4, it says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until those particular, the thousand years, had been completed. It goes on in verse 6, and we see the same thing, that those who will be resurrected will reign with Christ, will rule with Him, will be priests and rulers for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. As we consider our question, it's important to understand that there are four basic schools of thought when it comes to the millennium. And uh, each one of them comes from a differing way of, of uh, interpreting biblical prophecy. And I think it's important that we have a backdrop to understand that so that when we get into what the Bible actually teaches, we can compare what the Bible teaches to those schools of thought. The first is uh, what's called amillennialism, which is uh, basically amillennialists believe that there will be no earthly millennium or no earthly thousand-year period of, of time. It's, uh, they allegorize this uh, thousand years, and they say that it's a period extended from the first coming of Christ, his incarnation, until his second coming, which basically would mean that we are now in what they would term to be the millennial period or this time of great victory as far as Christ is concerned. They believe that Christ is already reigning as king in the hearts of those who have given their lives to Christ and that all of the unfulfilled promises made to Israel in the Old Testament have either been fulfilled or will be fulfilled um, by the church or will not take place because of the disobedience of Israel. That's basically amillennialism. There are those who are premillennialist who believe the world will be Christianized, that there will be a thousand-year period of peace and righteousness, that the world is getting better. And that at the end of that thousand years, it says the world is uh, that the, eventually the number of saved will far exceed the number of the lost. 
and they see no purpose as far as God is concerned for Israel, and they believe that there should be no special distinction between Israel and the church. Then there are historic premillennialists who believe that all the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled in the church. And as we look at the differences as far as pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all the things that we've talked about in the series, you'll begin to understand that th that particular viewpoint that you espouse will determine how you interpret or how you read into certain passages. And so we, we need to take a look at that. But historic premillennialists believe there's no distinction between Israel and the church, and that basically all of God's promises to Israel are now carried on as far as uh, the church is concerned, and God will fulfill his promises to the church. There are those who are dispensational premillennialists, and they believe the Old Testament should be interpreted literally, that all unfulfilled prophecy or promises to Israel will be fulfilled literally and historically as every prophecy in Scripture has taken place so far. Um, that there's currently a time where we're in right now between the rejection of God's offer of forgiveness in Christ and the time that Jesus Christ will come and establish his kingdom <clears throat> here on earth. According to this particular view, God is not finished with Israel. The promises that he made to Israel, the covenant that he made, had nothing to do with their obedience or disobedience, but it has to do with the character and the faithfulness of God, that God made a promise and he will keep that promise. And one day there will be a literal thousand-year period of time here on this earth where Jesus Christ will reign and God will bless the nation of Israel, those who embrace Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And through Israel, all of the nations of the world will be blessed according to the promises that God has already made made them. Now the question is, as we go through this, which view is correct? And I think it's important as we have that in the back of our minds that we recognize and understand that the Bible will interpret very clearly or speak very clearly to us, and we need to take a look at at least seven things, and we'll look at some of them this morning, and we'll look at the rest next time. But the bottom line is this, we need to be open to listen to what, what the Bible teaches, and as we look at what the Bible teaches, at the end of all of this, then we can come to some conclusions as far as which theory or which school of thought lines up best with Scripture. And that's basically what we're going to try to do as we go through it. So as we're going through this particular time that's called the millennium, or what is the millennium, and addressing that question, the first thing that we need to look at is this, that the millennium is the direct rule of God on the earth. The millennium is the direct rule of God on the earth. Now, there's a certain sense where people would argue that God is already ruling the earth. We saw that clearly taught in our study of the book of Daniel. And if you've got your Bibles, turn back to Daniel chapter 4 and kind of a, as a refresher to see that God is absolutely in control. There's no question about that. And there will be those who would argue that, you know what, well, God's already ruling the earth. So that position would be taken by those who do not believe in a millennial reign or a thousand-year reign of Christ. And they'd say, well, God's in control anyway. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. This is the prophecy that was concerning Nebuchadnezzar as king. And God had judged him for his rebellion or his rejection of God's authority in his life. And it says this sentence in verse 17 is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. He sets it over the lowliest of men. Verse 25, we continue, that you may be driven away from mankind, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, and your dwelling place may be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. In verses 34 through 35, we see the same thing in the conclusion of this. 
where Nebuchadnezzar, after the fact, raises his eyes in verse 34 towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High, I praised and honored him who lives forever. It says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or to say to him, what hast thou done? So as we look at this, there is a certain degree in which the Bible is very clear that God is in absolute control over the affairs of men. Psalm 103.19 declares, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, says, and rules over all, including the earth. The interesting thing is that the Bible is also clear that in terms of a direct rule that the world is in the dominion or is the dominion of Satan. And, uh, he, and if you stop and think about what's being said here, God is in absolute control and yet God also allows Satan, in this particular case, to be, have dominion over the earth. At the time where Adam chose to sin or rebel before God, which we call the fall of man, and when sin entered into the world, at that particular time, the dominion that God had given to man was usurped by Satan. For those who would question that or challenge that, I ask you to turn with me in Matthew chapter 4, in an incident that, was, that we look at as the temptation of Christ in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, look at verses 8 and 9. At the conclusion of these temptations, Jesus was tempted by Satan... And it says in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 4, it says, And the devil took him, speaking of Jesus, to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus later in John 12, 31, called Satan the, the uh, ruler of this world. The interesting thing is, is that Jesus was being offered the kingdoms of the world and all the power that went with it, even though as God he was in control of the universe, yet God allowed Satan to, be, to have dominion over the earth. And what he was offering to him, he could offer because he is the God of this world. And we need to recognize and understand that. So as we're looking at this, we've learned in our study, even of the end times, that Satan will empower the Antichrist or the coming world leader. He will deceive him, as we read in Revelation 20, that he is a deceiver of the nations. And he will deceive this man and the nations around him to rise up and rebel against God and his Savior, speaking of Jesus Christ. And so Satan has a tremendous influence upon the world. We see that also, as we'll look in this particular se session that talks about the millennium, we see that he is bound up for a period of a thousand years, and then he will be released. And the first thing that he does after he's released is go back to what he's been doing from the very beginning, and that is deceiving mankind trying to destroy people and the plan of God, causing people to call into question the word of God. God didn't really say that's really not what he meant. Certainly didn't mean that. Certainly God wants you to be happy. Certainly God wants your life to be fulfilled and exciting and all of that. And so he brings the question, the word of God. When God says something, temptation is basically an enticement to get us to believe that what God says is a lie so that we then believe the lie that is then pre presented as truth and it's not. So when we look at all this, we're going to see that Satan has a tremendous amount of influence over the affairs of men. The Bible is clear that one day, however, the Son of Man will establish the kingdom, God's kingdom, his rule here on earth, and God will right that which was made wrong at the fall. In fact, when the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them how to pray, Jesus said, pray in this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will be a day where that prayer is answered in its entirety. 
God's will is not being done on this earth as it is in heaven, but there will be a day where the will of God will take place here on this earth exactly as it does in heaven. So we're going to take a look at that and go through it. What's exciting about all of that is you go, well, how in the world is God going to be able to rule over the affairs of men? And how are things going to happen here on earth exactly as they're happening in heaven? And God has chosen to basically do it this way. He will send Jesus Christ to reign over all of the earth. The millennium is a period of time where there will be the personal reign of Jesus Christ over all of the earth. Now, those who would object to this would say this. Well, you know what? Jesus is already ruling. He's already king. He's king in the hearts of those who have received him or believe in him. But it isn't a matter of whether or not he is the king over believers or lord of believers. It's a question of him being king and lord over all who live on the face of the earth. Now, it's obvious as you look around and as you have conversations with family members or people that you work with or, you know, as we listen to the media and all that goes along with it, it's pretty evident that Jesus Christ is not today Lord over this particular planet. Jesus is not Lord over this earth. He is not the king of this earth. And we know that because there are literally hundreds of millions of people who deny that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. They deny that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. They deny that Jesus Christ is the only way of forgiveness, that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than Jesus. They deny that, and they believe that there are a ton of roads that lead to heaven as long as you're sincere, as long as you're good, as long as you do whatever the list is that they come up with, that there are other ways to please God, and that's the route or the, the pursuits that, that, they, that they are going about. And Jesus said that, you know what, though? But that way or that way of, uh, is broad and, and leads to destruction. That God's way is very narrow. And in a lot of ways, when people say to Christians that you're very narrow-minded, the answer is simply yes, because you know what? There are a lot of times in life where there is no broad way to consider things. There are certain things in life that are very narrow in perspective. And we need to recognize and understand that. And yet they will embrace that in a lot of ways in life, but when it comes to a relationship with God, they want to somehow or another come up with their own program. That would be like standing on the top of a 50-story building, and if you were going to jump off the side of it, uh, someone would say to you, well, you know what, uh, gravity is going to take you to the bottom, and you're going to be killed by it. And you'd look at that person, the same argument would be, well, that's a very narrow perspective. I mean, you need to be a little more open-minded than that. I mean, how can you be so narrow-minded to believe that if I jumped off this building that gravity would somehow kick in and uh, that I would fall to my death? Well, there are some things that just aren't negotiable. And just as the laws of the universe, which, by the way, were established by God to help us understand that there are some very narrow ways in life, that God says the same thing, that, you know what, when it comes to God's plan and his program, it's as narrow as God wants it to be. And that's as simple as you can put it. So as we look at this, we begin to realize, you know what, that Jesus Christ is not ruling this earth. There are hundreds of millions of people who have the freedom to reject him, and they are, and they are exercising that freedom. And yet, Zechariah 14.9, we read, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, which if you recall in our study of Daniel, Daniel had a vision at night, and he says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man which, by the way, was Jesus' favorite title of himself, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
If you recall from our study in the book of Acts, chapter 1, the Bible says as the, these men of Galilee were standing, staring into space or staring into the clouds. The angel of God said to them, Why do you stand staring up into the clouds? This Jesus who is just taken up before you will return in exactly the same way as he left. And so we read in Revelation 19 that Jesus Christ, when he returns, will come with the clouds. Here it is that Daniel's having this vision, and it says that he is the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. It is a, a title that's given of God the Father throughout the Old Testament, and he was led into his presence. And notice, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. When was Jesus Christ given this authority? We know the Great Commission. He says this, all authority has been given unto me. In Matthew chapter 28, he says that we should go and make disciples of all nations. And as we go, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, that Jesus Christ was given all authority. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, therefore, uh, because he, he was obedient to the point of death on the cross, he submitted to the will of the Father that through him we would, we would have forgiveness of sin. The Bible says, therefore, because Jesus put his life put his life up as, as basically a substitute for us. The Bible says that therefore God has highly exalted upon him a name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, that he is Lord to the glory of God. Jesus Christ was given the authority. He was given the authority to judge the world. He was given the authority to judge individuals who would reject him. And it says that one day he will be Lord over all the nations and, and men of every language. They worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The question that I have as we go through this is, when will this take place? When will every nation worship him? When will all people worship him? When will that take place? Certainly not in heaven, because those who reject Christ will not be in heaven. They will be separated from God, and we'll talk about that in a future session. But the, the reality of it is that not all men will worship him. And so as we look at this, we have to ask the question, that's, okay, when will that take place? This personal reign of Jesus Christ, is it taught in Scripture? Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Write these down, look them up whenever you've got some time. We're told that Jesus is, is born to be the king of the Jews. When will that take place? In Micah 5, 2, we read these words, But you, Bethlehem, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel. Not of, of Israel, but in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. From the foundation of the world, God has, God has established the fact that Jesus Christ one day will rule in Israel. That's a remarkable prophecy. In Micah 4, 8, we read, The kingdom shall come to the daughters of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, 9, which we've already said, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day there should be one Lord, and his name one. Zechariah 14, 15, listen to this. It's an amazing prophecy, and it says, And it will come to pass. That everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of the tabernacles. Notice what he says, that everyone who survives the battle of Armageddon, that all of those nations that have risen up against Jesus Christ and his return, the Bible says that they will go from year to year to worship the king in Jerusalem. Wow. 
Daniel 2, 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. One of the most remarkable passages of all scripture is found in Isaiah 11. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11 as we address this question. Does the Bible teach that Jesus Christ one day will come and rule over the face of the earth? Isaiah chapter 11, notice starting with verse 1. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what, he see, what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But he will judge with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. It says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy any in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious." What an incredible picture of a time in the future. And you've got to ask yourself the question. If, as many believe, from an amillennial standpoint, for example, or, or even those who believe in postmillennial standpoint, that somehow we're in this wonderful thousand years of, uh, of just absolute tranquility and peace that are on the face of the earth, my question for them is a very simple one, and that's this. Uh, when was the last time that you saw any of those things taking place, as far as you're concerned, on the Nature Channel? I mean, stop and think about it for a second. It says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Yeah, until that lamb gets eaten up. You know, and, and, and you look at it and say, well, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the kid, the calf, and the young lion together. A little boy will lead them. What was the last time you saw kids out there playing with wild animals or petting vipers or snakes? I mean, the reality of it is we've got to look at this, and this is what God says will happen at some point in the future. The question for you is, when is that? For those who say we are living in that period of time, how can you defend what God clearly states in this particular passage of Scripture that has yet to take place? We're going to take a look at that. What's really fascinating to me is if you look at verse 4, notice what it says. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Isaiah 11.4 is quoted in Revelation 19.15 where it says, And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Notice that when Jesus Christ personally reigns on the face of the earth, that it'll be his word and his word alone that'll be used to judge all the different uh, situations that come up as far as judgment is concerned. His word and his word alone. And you know what? It's the word of God and the word of God alone that either condemns us or commends us as far as God is concerned. 
The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, separate bone from marrow. The Word of God, when God's Word goes out, God's Word penetrates our hearts. And it's the Word of God who says basically this, that you are either guilty before God or that you are forgiven by God because His Word promises for those who have received Christ, to them they will be called children of God, to those who believe in His name. For those who go to God and ask for forgiveness and believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, the Word of God says that you are saved by God's grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's the Word of God that commends those who make that decision, and it's the Word of God who, that will also condemn those who reject that salvation that's found in no other name but Jesus Christ and Him alone. God's Word is always the final judge. You realize there will be a day where Jesus Christ will sit in Jerusalem and he will judge the affairs of men. And his word is authoritative. His word will be final. Just as a judge today, if you go into a courtroom, says it's 25 years and he pounds his gavel, guess what? It's 25 years and the judge's decision is final. The word is final because the word is authoritative. In God's case, Jesus Christ and his word will be authoritative and he will judge, the, and, he will judge and rule over the hearts of men over the entire earth and there will be no uh, appeal process. There will be no negotiation. Whatever he says goes. Why? Because he's a perfect judge who sees all things exactly as they are. So when he enters into judgment with the person, he already knows not only the heart of that person and the intent of that person, but he knows the actions that they've committed. And when he judges, you know what? No one can stand before him and say, this has been a railroad. I've been set up because he knows. And we're going to talk more in detail about the judgment of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth when we look at the, the next time we're, that we're together next week. But it's fascinating as we go through this that God's word is final. And so as we look at all these things, you've got to begin to ask yourself several questions, and that's this. You know what? Does the Bible clearly teach that Jesus Christ will reign one day on the face of the earth? Turn with me to, uh, well, you know what? While you're turning your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. But as you're, as you're turning there, a very popular passage of scripture that we know at Christmas time, specifically Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we read this. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I cannot, I, I, can't, I can't even begin to understand how as we read through Scripture and the Bible is so clear that anyone can somehow or another come to any other conclusion than the one that there is right before their face. And that is this. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and into eternity. The Bible very clearly says that Jesus Christ will come and establish his kingdom here on this earth. What was the biggest stumbling block to the disciples? When was Jesus going to establish his kingdom that was promised by God from the very beginning to Abraham that one day they will be a great nation and rule over all the nations of the world? Their biggest stumbling block was, Lord, when are you going to set this up? 
We don't get it. We don't understand what's going on. What are you waiting for? Man, this would be the perfect time. And when Jesus rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, and they were all yelling, Hosanna in the highest, for the king has come to establish his kingdom, they were convinced that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to set himself upon the throne and to take command over all of the world. They were convinced of that. And that's why they were so shocked when he died, even though he said, I'm going into Jerusalem, but I'm not going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to die, and three days later, I will arise again. He told them clearly, but they didn't want to hear that. Why? Because they had their own agenda. They wanted him to set up a kingdom, and they wanted to be part of it. And in Luke chapter 19, notice what, what's uh, said by Jesus himself. Luke 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. And look at verse 11. He says, now, while they were listening to the disciples, he, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. This is the event that we're talking about. He was going into Jerusalem. He would be killed. They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They were convinced of it. And they saw that all the things that Jesus did... Now, stop and think about it. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead. They saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind. They saw Jesus raise up those who had never walked in their life. They saw Jesus feed multitudes of people. They saw Jesus do one miracle after another, after another, after another. And they were totally convinced that, you know what? There's no stopping him. There is nothing that any human being or groups of people would be able to do to stop Jesus from accomplishing what he set out to accomplish. And you know what? And they were right but they just didn't understand what he set out to accomplish. Says that, and he, he said, therefore, to them, because he knew that they were misunderstanding what was going on. Look what he said. He says, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then what? And then to return. He went away to receive a kingdom for himself, then he would return. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2, which we've already talked about, that God highly exalted upon him a name above every other name, that he was given authority, that he was given dominion over all of the earth, that God highly bestowed upon him, God gave him the authority. And notice what else it says. It says, once he received that authority, that he would return and what? Establish his kingdom. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Very clearly saying you're to be busy and doing the things that God wants us to do until he returns. He says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, what, why do we, uh, we do not want this man to reign over us or to be ruler over us. He goes on and says, And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had been given the money be called in him in order that he may know what business they had done. And so basically as we talk about this system here that God is going to evaluate or give rewards to those who are faithful and he's going to punish those who rejected him, the bottom line of everything that's being told here is that Jesus Christ went away to receive a kingdom. He received the authority by the Ancient of Days. God himself, the judge of all, gave Jesus the permission or the responsibility to judge. He will return to this earth and he will establish a kingdom. Acts 3, 19 through 21 says that he will return, that Jesus will be sent back by God the Father, and he will restore all that was spoken of to the nation of Israel. He will make restitution or restoration. He will restore that. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The question that I have for you is this. Are all of these passages, all these passages that we read, are they symbolic or are they literal? I want you to understand as we read through the Bible, and I can't make this any clearer than I have in the past, and I'm going to do it again today, where God intends 
there to be symbolism. He clearly states that it is symbolic. He uses words such as like or as to help us recognize that Jesus' hair is as or his eyes were like a burning fire. When God wants something to be interpreted literally, he very clearly just tells it the way that it is. Jesus Christ will return. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom. And that kingdom will have no end, and it will usher into eternity. The Bible clearly teaches that, that one day Jesus will return in Israel, and he will rule over the affairs of men. When we look at all this and we consider the millennium, it's very important that we recognize and understand that the Bible teaches that the millennium is a period of time where Jesus Christ himself shall return and rule over the affairs of men. The Bible cannot be any clearer than that. Another thing that we're going to look at is it also involves the resurrection of believers who will reign with Jesus Christ. The resurrection of believers who will reign with Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bibles, go back to the passage we opened up with, Revelation chapter 20, and we'll stop at the end of this. But I want you to see that God is very clear as we look at this to help us to understand, is this symbolic or is this literal? This is probably one of the strongest arguments against the thousand-year reign of Christ being spiritualized or symbolic in some way. Revelation chapter 20, notice in verses 4 through 6, these words. It says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The question for you is this. If this is a spiritual resurrection, then why does he go into great details to discuss a physical death? Notice what he says. These people died. These are those who lived into the tribulation period, who believed in Jesus Christ and lost their life because of their faith in Christ. They were given an option. You believe in Jesus Christ and you will die. You believe in the Antichrist and you will live and you will be able to conduct business and everything will be wonderful in this particular lifetime, but certainly not the next. They don't say that. But this will be great and they give you an option of taking the mark of the beast to continue to conduct any type of industry or business or whatever so you can eat and drink and, and, and conduct yourselves in the normal ways that people do in our culture today. But the bottom line is this. They rejected that and they accepted Christ. They were killed for that decision. And the Bible says very clearly that they were martyred for their faith. And notice what it also says. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The problem with those who try to symbolize scripture is, what do you symbolize? What parts do you symbolize and what parts do you take literal? If they were literally murdered for their faith then will they not also be literally resurrected for that same faith? Notice what he says. They will be raised from the dead, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. It's reasonable to assume that that resurrection is a physical resurrection. They were murdered physically. They will be raised physically. And as we look at this, there's four things I want to point out in closing. One is this. Notice in verse 4 the, ju- the responsibility for judgment. In verse 4, it says, I saw the thrones, they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 28. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes 
of Israel. The day of judgment has come for God's people who will judge along with Christ during this millennial reign. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we read, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The promise to God that God made to Daniel, he basically said this, that there is a day coming where you will be resurrected from the dead. You will be giving a resurrected body. The Old Testament patriarchs always understood resurrection. And, and, and in fact, it was in John chapter 11, uh, at Lazarus' death, he asked Martha and Mary, said, do you not believe in the resurrection? And she said, well, certainly we believe in the resurrection on the last day, that we will be raised from the dead. Job said the same thing. Even though I'm dead, one day I shall see my Redeemer. I know that he lives, and I'll see him in, in, in his flesh with my own very eyes. I will stand before him in my flesh and recognize that, that he is my redeemer. The Bible teaches this about resurrection. We'll, we'll go into this in, in great detail in another session, but the wonderful truth is this. But for those who die in Christ and those who die in righteousness, according to the Old Testament, those who have died believing that God would send a redeemer and a savior and believe the word of God, they were right before God because they believed the word of God. Here's what happens to them. They will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period and before the great millennium begins this thousand year reign of Christ. And guess what? They will reign with him. Is that awesome? I mean, that's, I mean it's, and you look at that. The resurrection of believers is going to take place. And those who had not worshipped the beast and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, they came to life. Specifically, those who died during the tribulation will also be resurrected at that time. Now, the question is, if you die today or I died today, before Jesus comes for the church, what we know is the rapture and what we've already talked about, if you die today, the question is, when will you be resurrected? When will you be given a resurrected body? The Bible is very clear. At the time when Jesus Christ comes for his church, that those who are dead in Christ will be raised, and those who are alive will be caught up with them. If I die today because I've believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, and the rapture doesn't take place for whoever knows whenever, the Bible says I'll be absent from my body, but I'll be present with the Lord, and that the day that Jesus comes for his church, that those who are dead in Christ will raise first, will be given a resurrected body. And those who are alive at the time will be changed in a twinkling of an eye, and that we will be given, if we're alive then, a resurrected body at that time. The Bible is very clear as far as the resurrection is concerned, and we need to recognize and understand that. Now notice also in verse 5, the rest of the dead... Let's assume for a moment that you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. That you don't know what's going to happen to you if you die. That, you know, yeah, you've heard the gospel, you've heard that Jesus died for your sins, you've seen the, the changes that take place in the lives of those around you, and maybe you're at that point where you say, well, I'm really happy for them, but I'm really not into it yet, and now I don't really have any interest in that. And, you know, I'm glad to see that it's good for you, but I'm not, you know, that's just not me. Let's just assume for a moment that you're in that position, and you die. The Bible says that you will be separated from God, from all, for all of eternity. That when we who have believed in Christ are resurrected and will reign with Christ, that you will be waiting for judgment, and the Bible clearly says, and the rest of the dead, which you'd fall into that category, and the rest of the dead did not come to life, when? Until the thousand years were completed. And at that time, you will be judged by God for your rejection of Jesus Christ. You will be judged according to the works or the deeds of your life which will fall short of God's standard that we have to be perfect, and you will then be separated from God for all of eternity. We'll talk in greater detail. Dave, I heard, did a great job discussing that last week for those who were here. We'll talk in detail about the resurrection. But the point is this, that those who die outside of a relationship with Christ 
will not be raised to reign with Christ and rule with him for a thousand years. Now, the interesting thing is the reward for all of those who believe in Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, is very clear, and that's this. It is a trustworthy statement. I love that. All of the word of God is trustworthy. All the word of God is true. And I just love when I, when I read in the Bible, and this is a trustworthy statement. Because to me, it's kind of like, Chuck, you can bank on this. This is trustworthy. You can believe this. You can believe this with your life. You can believe this with your eternity at stake. This is a trustworthy statement, and that's this. If we died with him, meaning what? If we believe that Jesus died for our sins, then we have died with him, and he has taken our place, and we will not be judged by God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we died with him, we will also live with him. He is the first fruits of those who would be resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to demonstrate that he had power over death, that he had power over sin, that he could offer the forgiveness that he offered us, and that we would not only be, be made a, a, alive spiritually, but that one day he would also make us alive physically, even though we have died in and of our bodies. He says, if we uh, died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The Bible says that there is a day coming. It is the destiny of all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That there is a day coming when, when he comes to this earth again, that he will come in triumph, he will come in victory. He will establish his kingdom as God had promised to, to Abraham from the very beginning. That the land of Israel will be made a great nation and all the nations of the world will be blessed through them. That Jesus Christ will rule in Israel. That he will take his throne upon the throne of David. And he will rule in righteousness. And the exciting thing is if that's not exciting enough, is that God promises that for those of us who believe in him and trust in him, the Bible says that we will also reign with him. It has to do with the idea of a political ruler. We will reign with him. And not only will we reign with him, but the Bible says that, that we will also reign with him as kings and priests. That there will be religious festivals that will be celebrating the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. That there will be sacrifices that are made in the temple that will be rebuilt. That all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem and they will offer commemorative sacrifices. Thanking God for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. And we will be part of all of that. And we will reign with him for a literal time of 1,000 years. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. And we've seen that so far. And we're going to see more of that next time. The question for you this morning is this. Is that your destiny? Are you looking forward to the day where because you believed in Jesus Christ, that according to the word of God, that you will reign and rule with him? Or do you not know? And the whole idea is a little scary to even think about. Well, for you, I'd encourage you basically to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. The Bible says it's by grace, God's grace. It's a gift that's offered. He's saying to you that, you know what? You'll never get to heaven on your own. You'll never get to heaven the way you're trying to get there. Because God's standard is perfection and you'll never be perfect. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And none are righteous, no, not one. He's saying, but for you, because you've got that problem, I sent Jesus Christ to die for you. 
And he died on the cross. And he took our place. And if you believe that, the Bible says that you'll be made righteous through Christ. That you'll no longer be held accountable for your sin. That God will never judge you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you're here today and you don't really know where you're going to end up on that great day of resurrection, then God says today is the day of the Lord. Don't hesitate. Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know whether you have another minute of life here on this earth. And if God's talking to you and the Spirit of God's convicting you and you don't know what's going on and you want to know, then today is the day you need to get right with God. And if you would, please, just in a moment of silence, if you just pray, because look at, notice what Jesus says. If you disown me, I'll disown you. He says, if you don't confess me before, you know, before men, I won't confess you before my Father who's in heaven. You know, we got this thing, we're all hung up today about embarrassing people, but let me just tell you something. A true sign of a person who's given their heart and life to Jesus Christ is a person who will stand up and be counted for in public. They'll stand up and they'll take a stand, they'll raise their hand, they'll do whatever they hand, so all the people around them can see, you know what, I'm not ashamed. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I'm willing to take a stand. And I'm willing to take a stand even here in the comfort of an environment where there are people around you who will embrace you. And yet alone to take a stand in the world that hates Jesus Christ and, and doesn't want him to rule over the hearts of men. So the Bible says if you want to get right with God and you're here today and, and you don't know but you want to, then he's saying if you want, stand up right now. Stand up right now and God, and God knows your heart. And the rest of us will pray as you pray. Father, we're just thankful that uh, it's not by our works it's not by our own efforts. It's not by going to church. It's not by doing all the things the world tells us to do. But it's by what you have done for us that you have sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And in him alone do we find forgiveness. The Bible says the way of destruction is broad, but we need to enter the narrow gate. And Jesus said that the narrow gate was him, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man could ever come through the Father but through him. God, we just thank you that you make that known to us in our hearts and that we can receive that gift that you offer. God, I just pray for those who are struggling with that today that maybe are embarrassed in front of others, that they'll realize that they need to confess you before men so that you too will confess them before your Father who's in heaven. That those who disown them, disown you, Lord, will also be disowned by you. And there will be a great day of terror and judgment that will fall upon the hearts of those who refuse to receive the gift of salvation in Christ. God, we just thank you and we praise you for the wonderful news, the good news of the gospel. And we just look forward to that day, according to your word, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom here on earth for a period of a thousand years. And those who believe in him will be raised to rule with him for that period of time. And not only for that period of time, but you said that your kingdom will have no end and it will usher in eternity. And God, we're just thankful. We're excited. We look forward to what you're going to do. And that we look forward to the millennium as we celebrate the return of Christ to this earth. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.